Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. This week's kind of been an interesting week because um, Thanksgiving was so early that it feels like we started celebrating. I'm one of those people, I don't listen to Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. Let me see how many of you are after Thanksgiving people. All those that have their hands are correct in the world. All right, that's good. All right, so after Thanksgiving is when we start. And so it feels like, you know, we've been kind of celebrating Christmas, but today is the first Sunday of Advent, traditional Advent. And I was thinking about growing up, how it seemed like December was the longest month of the year. Like you would get to December 1st, and you knew that Christmas was coming, and it just seemed like it took forever to get here. Now as an adult, December is the fastest month of the year, right? Like you don't have everything ready, you're still looking, you're still trying to get, you're still trying to do all that stuff, and it's like it's here all of a sudden. And I kept thinking about this this tendency we have that when something's really, we feel like something's important or something's coming, that we don't do well with the waiting part of that. In fact, in general, we don't like waiting at all. The season of Advent, the season of moving towards Christmas has kind of as this theme, the waiting for Christmas, waiting for Jesus, waiting for the Messiah. And I was thinking about that concept of waiting this week when I read a story about an airport in Houston that was receiving multiple complaints all the time about their baggage claim service and how slow it was. And so they decided we would hire more baggage claim attendants, we'd have more baggage people, and they got to the point where they were able to get the bags from the plane to the carousel in an industry-leading eight minutes. So within eight minutes, they were able to get it from the plane to the carousel. And guess what happened with the complaints? They stayed the same. They couldn't figure it out. They were like, we've cut it. We have the best in the industry. We have the shortest amount of time from the plane to the carousel. It's eight minutes. Why in the world are people still complaining? So they began to investigate more. And what they discovered is that it only took people one minute to walk from the plane gate that they were getting off of to the baggage claim. And so they were standing there for six minutes waiting. So you know how they solved the problem? They move the gates farther away from the baggage claim. People walk 10 minutes to get there. They get there. Their bags are there. They have the highest satisfaction on baggage claim in America. Right? We hate to wait. Especially just kind of sitting around, standing around. What are you? What, what place do you... This, it's, it's just confession and get it out time, you know, support group time. What place do you hate waiting at the most? What was that? Disney World, Chick-fil-A. I mean, all those are good things, right? You get to do a good thing, get the rod, right? You get, I mean, Christian chicken. I mean, it can't get better than that, right? What else? Somebody, a doctor's office, her doctor's office. Fast food, like when you order, and it's supposed to be what? Fast, right? Yeah, oh yeah. DMV. How many of you love that place? I had the privilege of spending a little time at the DMV this year. Have a 15-year-old need to take his permit test. We got there before it opened because they, we were told, first of all, let me just give you, let me, this is for all you parents that are about to have 15-year-olds. There's this philosophy out there that Springfield's faster than everywhere else. That is untrue. All right, let me just tell you. I heard it from 10 people. We took all our boys, all our girls to Springfield. You're in and out, no problem. We got there. 
Ten minutes before it opened, there was already a line at the door. We sat there for three hours. Ain't a lot to do in the DMV. Cell phone reception was bad. It was the biggest test that God has given me in a long time, all right? Like, we don't like to wait. Now imagine a people, a group, a country waiting 400 years. When we pick up the story in Luke chapter 1, we're going to read the story of a people that waited 400 years. And we're actually going to read Luke chapter 1, verses 5 and following today for our main passage. But if you've got your Bibles open, this isn't going to be on the screen. But I want you to see this because I want you to see a picture of what's happening here. In Luke chapter 1, verse 78. It's one of those long chapters, lots of verses. Verse 78. This is Zechariah. We're going to talk about Zechariah much more in detail for the rest of the sermon. But this is Zechariah at the end of what's happening. We're not going to spoil anything here, but he has a son, all right? And as he finds out that he's going to have a son, as he's named a son, as that's happening, he is working through his emotions. He can't speak for the time period, and we'll find out why in a few minutes. But as he gets to the end of that, he's able to finally speak. He's able to announce his son's name, and he bursts out into praise because of what God has done. And in verse 78 of chapter 1, it says, Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us. Or, the sun is rising on us. Or, we will see the sun. And what he's saying there is that we have been in a moment of great darkness and yet God is visiting us. The sunrise is happening again. What's interesting about that is if you turn back, again this won't be on the screen, but you can turn back to the book of Malachi. If you know where Malachi is, go to Matthew and take a left. It's the last book of the Old Testament. In fact, I want to read you the last verses of the Old Testament because they form the frame of what we're going to talk about for the rest of the message. At the end of the book of Malachi, Malachi has been given prophecies and he says in chapter 4, verse 1, For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. He says the God is going to bring judgment. The Lord is going to bring judgment. And he says to those that are opposed to the Lord, the coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies. But then he says, not leaving any root or branches. Verse 2. But for you who fear my name, get this, the dawn of righteousness will rise. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out, and I love this picture, and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I'm preparing. He says, listen, a day is coming when all will be set right, when righteousness will reign again. He says, remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statues and ordinance I commanded him. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. The end. And then 400 years of silence. He says, listen, there's going to come a day of judgment. There's going to come a day when I'm going to set things right. And he compares it to, in Malachi, a new dawn. A day of a sun 
rising. And at the end of chapter 1 of the book of Luke, when Zechariah is referring to what's happening in his land, what's happening in his midst, it's interesting because we're going to see in a moment there are other allusions, other references to that Malachi passage. He says in there, the new day has come. The 400 years of waiting is over. 400 years had passed since Malachi. There had been no prophecy, no prophet, no word, but the sun was rising. 400 years had passed. There had been darkness. They had walked in with people that had no leader. They had not had a prophet to show them the way. They had been, it seemed to them, refused by God. And they were looking for an answer. And Zechariah says, the dawn is breaking. The plans that have been laid for eternal ages past were being set in motion. The new plan of God was being activated in that moment. And while that's happening, perhaps the ones who are most excited outside of the Trinity Godhead himself, the ones that are most excited about what is about to take place are the heavenly beings he would use to break the news to those that lived on the earth that God was up to something big. There are four times in the birth story of Christ. Now, there are angels throughout Scripture. Angels appear in all kinds of places, manifestations of angels where they talk with people, where they interact with people. But there are four occurrences in the story of Jesus being born. In his birth account, there are four times when angels appear and give messages from God to the people around them. And so over the next four weeks, what we're going to do in a series we're calling Hark is we are going to look at each of those moments when an angel appeared to someone and told them what God was up to. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5, says this. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. Now there are a couple of pertinent pieces of information there. First of all, that this man, Zechariah, was a priest. It wasn't, uh, to be a priest in that day, all you had to do was to be a descendant of Aaron, Moses' brother Aaron. If you were a descendant of Aaron, you were a priest. That's what you were. You didn't have any choice about the matter, you were a priest. In fact, by the time they got to this moment, by the time they got to the moment that we're describing in Luke chapter 1, there were somewhere around 20,000 priests in Israel. That's a lot of priests. For about four jobs a day, they had 20,000 applicants. So they had to figure out some kind of rotation business. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So as you're telling you, Zechariah is a priest. Now he's from Abijah's division. There's nothing really that significant about Abijah's division. It was the eighth division listed, or eighth place listed there, but it's not really a big deal about that. It's just letting you know he's a priest, he's in good standing. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, there was a requirement when you were a priest that you had to marry a purely Jewish lady, woman. You had to find someone that had complete Jewish Hebrew heritage. It was not required to marry someone of the line of Aaron, but it was considered better if you did. And so as Zechariah married someone that was from the line of Aaron, he married a priest family's daughter. So this was considered the highest priest kind of family you could have. And then he goes on to tell us, both were righteous in God's sight. They were good people. They followed the law. They lived without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. And so it sets the scene for us at the very beginning that these two people we're going to meet, Zechariah and Elizabeth, are 
of the highest quality people from the best families doing the work of the Lord and they are doing exactly what God has called them to do. They are blameless when it comes to the law. It doesn't mean they were perfect. It just means that they were living their lives according to the law as best they could. But, but, they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive and both of them were well along in years. No children. Now the reality is, no matter what error of time you live in, infertility is very difficult to deal with. Many of you know the story of Susan and I, some of you don't, but many people that that just meet us, look at us, we have four beautiful kids, we're thankful to the Lord for that. But we were told in our marriage early on that we had 0% chance to have kids. Now, my brother-in-law always asked the question, is that guy selling insurance now because he doesn't need to be doing doctoring stuff, all right? Kind of missed it. We know that the doctor was right. It was a miracle of God that provided our kids for us. We believe in miracles because we have four. But I remember vividly those years of living with the reality of infertility in our lives. The discussions that Susan and I had, the strain that it placed on her, the strain that it placed on me, the strain that it placed on us. The difficulty it was to hear of others, and while we rejoiced with them about the fact that they they were having children, the difficulty that was still there in realizing that we had not yet been blessed. It doesn't matter what era of time you're living in, infertility is difficult to deal with. But in the time that Zechariah and Elizabeth are living, it was worse Because it wasn't just that they weren't able to have children. They were considered removed from God in their relationship with him because they couldn't. In fact, scribes, Pharisees, scholars of the Jewish law said that there were some people that were excommunicated from God. Seven kinds of people. And one of those people were the Jewish person who had a wife and no children. In fact, in their day and time, childlessness was a verifiable reason for divorce. If a wife could not give you children, you could divorce her so that you could carry on your line. See, most of them did not believe, many of the Jews at that time did not believe in an afterlife. And so they thought the only way to carry on in existence after you were gone was through male children. And so when Zechariah and Elizabeth don't have kids, it's not just, and there was, emotional anguish that went with that. There is also the reality that people around them looked at them and thought, what did they do wrong? What sin have they committed? Why does God not love them? Why does God not care about them? What do they do to incur the wrath of God? When his division was on duty... So remember I told you there were 20,000 priests. Those 20,000 priests were divided into 24 divisions, and those divisions would serve two weeks out of the year. So two weeks out of the year when you were a priest, you did your job. The other 50 weeks, you didn't. Those two weeks you did your job. Again, they didn't need 20,000 priests showing up at the temple every day. It's kind of overwhelming. So they'd have a division of priests that was around seven to 800, and they would serve for a week. Now, there were certain weeks of the year when every priest served, so you actually served more than two weeks. You would serve every year at Passover, every year at Pentecost, every year at the Feast of Tabernacles. But on these two weeks, it was just your group there. He was serving as priests before God, and it happened 
that he was chosen by lot, they would choose by lot, it's a system they had to choose the person that would do this, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. And so what they would do is that they would set aside, hey, your division's doing it today, we need everybody from your division to come that hasn't done this before, we're going to lay out lots, we're going to choose somebody to do this, and then you are going to get chosen to walk into the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place, and you're going to stand at the holy place, at the altar of incense, and you are going to be the representative for all of Israel, for all of the Jewish people, of offering an offering of incense unto the Lord, of praying before the Lord for the sins of our people to be restored, for them to be forgiven, for them to be redeemed, for our nation to be revived. You are the representative for that day. It was such a big accomplishment. It was such a big thing for them that when that happened, you were forbidden from ever doing it again. So it is literally a once in a lifetime job. And on this day, Zechariah goes, the lots are placed, and he is chosen. This would have been the pinnacle of his life. It would have been the biggest moment of his life. I can imagine in his mind, like, I can't wait to go home and talk to Elizabeth about what I got to do today, about all that happened today. I'm sure his heart was still heavy. Most people think that at this point he was so, he was old enough in his years that he had thought that the chance of him having children or her having children were out the window. And so he was just focusing on doing what God had called him to do. And this was the greatest thing that was ever going to happen to him in his life. And he walks in, he would walk into the sanctuary that day. It says, at the hour of, go back one, I missed a verse. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. So you have to get this idea that everybody, all those priests are there. There are people from the nation of Israel that are there. And they're all depending on him and they're waiting on him outside of the place. Next verse. And while he was there, get the picture. He's standing at the altar of incense. He waits from a signal from those that were outside the holy place. No one would have been in the holy place but him. He is standing there with the showbread on his left, the candlestick on his right. He is there at the altar of incense. The holy of holy curtains is right in front of him. On the other side of that is the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant is and God's presence descends and where he believes God lives at that moment. And at the altar of incense there, he would get down on his knees, he would put his hands there, he would lay the incense on the altar that was already hot, and as the incense rose to the Lord, he would stretch out his arms in a position, lay flat on the ground, and petition the Lord to forgive the sins of the people and to revive his country. And as he's finishing that, he looks up and someone's there. You ever... Had somebody show up where they weren't supposed to show up? Any of you have kids that enjoy scaring you sometimes? Like just waiting on you? So, you know, at my house, I'm a, uh, I was a pro-dog, anti-cat person. Well, let me rephrase that. I am a pro-dog, anti-cat person, but we have a dog and a cat at our house now. Um, we have a beautiful dog, Stella, love her. Um, we have a cat. Um, and the cat loves me. He loves me. All right. It's because I treat him the worst of all of us. And I don't give him time of day, but he wants me. He jumps. He does not jump in anybody's lap but mine. And then I push him out of my lap and he tries again. All right. But I, one, of, one of the things I love watching is our cat tries to think he's sneaky with Stella, our dog. 
So we have our cat's name is Luna. Our dog's name is Stella. Stella, Luna. Some of you will know the book. All right. And so Stella will go out and Luna will go out and then get in the bushes and hide and wait to scare Stella. And as Stella's walking back, he'll pounce out there and Stella's just like, oh, whatever, you're there. All right. If you're offering the altar of incense that day when no one else is in the room or can be in the room, I mean, it is, it's not just like, well, you shouldn't be in there. No one else would dare step in there thinking they would die. And you pull up from your prayer time and somebody's standing there, you're going to be freaked out. That's a biblical term, freaked out, right? It tells us here. An angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zacharias saw him, he was freaked out, right? That's the Larson paraphrase. He was terrified and overcome with fear. He wasn't just scared. He was scared and it racked his whole body. But the angel said to him, the first words that angels say to almost everybody they meet in the Bible, don't be afraid, right? You know why they say that? Because you are. And if you ever see an angel, it ain't a cute little baby on a cloud. It's a mighty warrior of God. Don't be afraid, Zachariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. He goes on to say, There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while he's still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he finishes by saying, that he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Now we're going to stop right there for a second. So let me ask you a question. Does any of that sound familiar? He's going to be like Elijah. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. I know it's been about ten minutes now. But when we read Malachi chapter 4, he's going to send a prophet like Elijah. He's going to turn the hearts of the people back to God, back to the Father. Fathers back to their sons, sons back to their fathers. He's telling them. What Malachi gave us as the last word from God that you have been holding on to for 400 years is happening right now. There are actually six promises that the angel made to Zechariah in the midst of that. He told him your prayers are going to be answered, which, by the way, we're going to talk about that more in just a second, because I don't think that's just about a son being born. He told him that God is gracious. He did that by telling him what he was going to name his son later too, that John was going to be there. John means the Lord has shown favor or the Lord is gracious. He tells him that you and your people will know joy and gladness, that your child will be great, that Israel will be revived, and that your child is the forerunner of the Messiah. And for a priest like Zechariah who was faithful to what God had called him to do, hearing those words, he would have immediately known that what was being said to him was that the Messiah was on his way and his family was going to have some part in that even though he didn't have a child at this moment it's like when God said to Abraham I'm going to build a great nation out of you a fatherless man he says I'm going to send the forerunner of the Messiah from you even though you have any kids yet 
Now here's what I think is interesting. When he says there at the beginning, your prayers have been heard, many people read that and they think, oh, his prayers for a child. And I do think that part of it is here that his prayers for a child are being answered. But listen, when you stood in the holy place of the Lord and you offered incense unto him, when you are prostrate before the Lord praying in that place, you are probably not, in most cases, praying for your own personal problems. You are praying for the salvation of your nation, for the forgiveness of the sins of the people of God, because that's what priest prayed for in that moment. And what he is saying to him in this day is Gabriel is saying, listen, your prayers have been heard. Sins are going to be forgiven. Things are going to change. A new order is coming. God is going to save his people. Zechariah hears all of that and immediately says, Thank you for this great honor. I really appreciate you doing that for us. Is that what he says? No. Here's what he says. He says, <laughs> how can I be sure of this? Like, I mean, I know you showed up where you weren't supposed to show up. You're kind of glowing like an angelic being here, and I'm not really sure what's going on. But, man, I'm old. And my wife is well along in years. And when you first read that, you think, well, that's kind of sweet of him. He doesn't want to call his wife old, Right? That's the politically correct way to say my wife is old also. He says, listen, she's well along in years. Can I tell you something? That in their language, that was an insult worse than calling them old. What he basically says is, how can that happen? I'm old and like my wife is like really old. Like I'm old, but she is like old. Right? So don't go home today, guys, and go, I'm a little older and you're a little more advanced in years. All right? Like that means she's like Oh, she is over the hill. It can't happen. Like he's like, I love these people in scripture that say to God, God, I love this idea. That's an awesome idea. I don't think you realize the situation we're in here. We're old. Now, just so you know, probably old to them is like my age right now. Life expectancy was much shorter. We're advanced in years was probably mid to late 40s. If you're in your mid to late 50s, sorry. I'm just telling you what it says in Scripture, all right? Not claiming anything. Maybe you're advanced in years. I don't know. And the angel, some of you will get that at lunchtime. It's all right. The angel answered him. I love this. So Zachariah says, listen, that sounds great, man. Don't think it can happen because I'm old. She's really old. And the angel answered him. And I'd love to. This is one of the places I wish it would give us the emotion with which it's said. Because I want to know if this is like jovial, like Gabriel. Like, man, I'm Gabriel. I came from the Lord. I came here to tell you this. It's awesome. I think it's more corrective than that. He goes, do you know who you're talking to? I'm Gabriel. From the throne room of God. He sent me here. For the specific purpose to tell you that you're going to have a son. He sent me to tell you this good news. And then he says, listen up. Here's what I think is interesting. In English, modern English, or kind of older English now, that word was translated into a simple four-letter word. Hark. Listen. That's why we call this series Hark. It's because we want to listen to what the Lord says. 
He says, listen, I'm Gabriel. I'm from the right hand of God. I have come to give you this good news. Listen, you are going to become silent and unable to speak until the time these take place because you did not believe my words will be fulfilled in their proper time. Can you imagine being a dad who has been praying for a son for years and you can't even go home and tell your wife? The Lord shows up, does something amazing in your life, and it's like, zip it. You can't talk until the baby's born. Meanwhile, I love how it zooms out. The people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. That's called, what is he doing in there? It's supposed to take just a few seconds, of maybe a couple of minutes. What is he doing? What is taking so long? What in the world could he be doing that would require him to stay in that place so long? This is also known as what every guy says while shopping in a mall or place with his significant other female. Some of you guys want to laugh at that and you can't. I understand. So he says, what are you taking so long? And he says, he comes out. He couldn't say anything. And I'd love to have been there. Knowing what we know, I'd love to have been there. He walks out. He's been in the altar of incense. He has done this one thing. He walks out there like, man, what took you so long? And he's like, "Mm -hmm." like, what are you talking about? This was before sign language had been invented. So this is like the worst game of charades you've ever seen, right? Like, what? He was making signs to them and remained speechless. And when the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. Here's the thing. He had to serve the rest of the week. He couldn't talk. Elizabeth's waiting on him at home. Like, I wonder if he had a good week at work. You realize she could, he couldn't call home and tell her how he'd gone. He served and stayed there. Next verse. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived kept herself in seclusion for five months, and she said, The Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. The rest of the story is that Elizabeth's cousin comes, is excited that she's going to have a child, knowing that she is going to give birth to the Savior in the weeks to come. John is born. Zechariah declares his name to be John. Everybody's, why are they called John? That's not a family name. Why are you calling him John? Zechariah explains what the Lord has done and burst out into praise. You know what I love about this story? There are lots of things about this story. We're going to talk about some things in our lives to keep doing or to do to prepare ourselves to hear from the Lord as Zechariah and Elizabeth did. But one of the things I love about this story is That the God of the universe was setting into motion the greatest plan that has ever existed or will exist in sending his son to save us from our sins. This is as big picture as you can get. This is universal implications from the creation of time until the end of it. It's the pivot point in history. He is setting that into motion officially through the forerunner John coming. And yet he takes time in the midst of doing all of that on the grandest scale to minister to a couple who had spent years in agony. He loved Zachariah and Elizabeth, just like he loves each and every one of you. He had heard their prayers and their cries and their distress. And he decided that as a part of saving the world, he would minister to them. 
How do we prepare ourselves to hear from the Lord? Three things and then we're done. First of all, live faithfully where God has planted you. Zachary and Elizabeth could have given up. It had been 400 years since the Lord had told them any kind of word. They were just continually to do what God had called them to do. When it says that they were faithful in every way, they were righteous in every way, they were doing what God had called them to do, that means Zechariah wholeheartedly did what he was called to do as a priest. Even though other priests, I am confident, based on the history of what we know, would have talked about him while he was there, whether he was worthy or not to do these things because of the fact that he was childless in his life. And when he got picked by Lot, they would have been shocked because they assumed that even though he served as a priest that would never happen to him because he did not have a child and yet he keeps showing up he keeps doing what God had called him to do he didn't see it as a mundane task he saw it as his ministry to the Lord and can I tell you something there is value in our lives if we keep showing up keep doing what God has called us to do I was taken by the video about the children's home when one of the parents said that they need to go to school. And then he says, every day, on time, every day. Like, there's value in just showing up. I read a, a, a story one time about employers and what they valued most in their employees. And you expect integrity, which was there. And you expect hard working, which was there. But one manager said, I just appreciate ones that show up. Like, they're just there. Like, that's part of it. Getting there is half the battle. Just showing up, doing what God calls. Now, I'm not trying to diminish it in any way. What I'm saying is, there is value in being faithful to what God has called us to do, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it seems mundane, even when it seems like it's the same thing over and over and over again. You show up and you do it because you never know when that moment's going to happen, when you're going to be chosen by God to have the most important day of your life, and God is going to work for you in a mighty way. You just keep showing up. Let me tell you, one of the issues that the American church has right now is people have decided they don't need to keep showing up on Sunday mornings and regular worship times because they feel like that it's just okay. We can make that happen other ways. And there's value in just showing up. I want to do something that's very hard for me to do right now. I'm going to talk good about an Alabama football player. Right? I watched the game last night, followed the game last night, and actually rooted for an Alabama football player for the first time in a long time. Because the guy that lost his job last year that came back in to save the season for them last night is the quarterback position, which, by the way, if you don't know, both of those guys, both those quarterback guys are guys that are committed to the Lord and uh, live for him. But if you know the story, got benched last year at halftime of the national championship game, had led them to as many wins as anybody in his first two years in the national championship and gets benched. New freshman comes in, wins the game. He is the hero. Guy comes this year, beats him out for a starting job, is a Heisman Trophy favorite, and gets hurt last night. And the other guy has to come back in, Jalen Hurts. And the, at the end of it, he was doing interviews. And basically the theme of the interviews was, I knew that if I just kept showing up, my opportunity would come. And last night when it came, he was the difference in them winning that game. Just keep showing up. Second thing that they teach us in this passage is pray persistently. He just kept praying that his son would come. Last week at Room at the Inn, um, we... Uh, Susan's women's class and Daniel Shaw's men's class did room at the end together. And so our family was there and with all of our kids. And we got, um, if you've never done room at the end, man, it is a 
great ministry. It is a rewarding ministry. We have homeless men come in on Sunday nights, and many of you have been a part of that. We feed them, we do a devotion with them, we pray with them, we give them a place to sleep, especially during the really cold times of year. It's just a, it's a great ministry. It's so appreciative. And so we, we're, one of the things that we do is Carla, who helps to run that ministry, gets everybody in a big circle to start. And we, she gives some announcements, tells them different things, um, introduces the classes that provided the meal for them. They do a prayer and then they get ready to eat. Well, um, somebody had Lyle Langford. I don't know if you know Lyle. Lyle comes to our first service, but Lyle Langford um, had asked if he could say a word before we got to the prayer time. And if you don't know Lyle's story, Lyle um, is brilliant, has a great mind. Um, his mom and dad. Um, Great people that were part of this church for many, many years. Miss Pat's still around. His father has passed away. But Lyle walked away from the Lord for years. And Miss Pat and Mr. Gerald prayed for him all the time. They always talked to me about praying for him. And in the last few years, the last couple of years, Lyle has returned to the Lord and is really, the Lord is doing an amazing work in his life. So we're gathering around. He wanted to share that with him. And kind of a funny thing that happened at the beginning of that was that we were we were getting ready to, to pray, and, Ms., and Carla's there. And I don't know if you know Carla. Carla, Carla, um, I love Carla. Carla just talks, and there's like lots of things going on at once. And so she's talking, and she says, she says, and we got somebody who's going to share with us. And just, oh, by the way, our pastor's here over here. Everybody say hello to her. And I said, okay, good to see you all. You know, thanks. Glad to have you here. Our pastor's great. And Lyle has been homeless. Lyle was homeless for 15 years. And uh, he's going to share his testimony with us. And so I was like, oh, that's awesome. And I see Maddie out of the corner of my eye. And Maddie's face just goes like white. And she drops the hands of the people next to her and kind of puts them together. And she walks over to me. She goes, when were you homeless, Dad? And I was like, I wasn't homeless. She said, Miss Carla just said you were homeless for 15 years. When was, like, she's like in her mind and she's trying to do the math. I was like, no, like, babe, I know there are only like four people in the world named Lyle, but two of us are in the circle right now. Like it's, you know, it's, you don't have that. And Lyle shared this testimony of how the Lord was working in his life. And all I could think about while I was sitting there was the number of conversations I'd had with the Langfords about him. And how long they had prayed for him. And that they never gave up. Zachariah and Elizabeth didn't give up. And I don't know what's happening in your life. And I don't know that there's not a prayer that you've been praying for years. And that has not been answered. Or hasn't been answered like you expected it to. Or that you're still holding out hope. Maybe it is a child that's walked away from the Lord. Maybe it's an infertility issue. Maybe it is that you just can't seem to... There's a relationship that you just can't get right. Or that you've been working on. You've been praying about. Maybe it's a job situation. Maybe it's something in your life that you want to get rid of. Maybe it's a sin that's familiar that you've been praying that God would take away. Keep praying. Persistently pray. And then the last thing, which is not what Zechariah did, trust his word. I love this, that <laughs> I said earlier that the angel comes. Angel standing there where he's not supposed to be standing. He is obviously an impressive figure, a warrior of God standing there. And he says, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah goes, I don't think so. Now, what's interesting is, if you read that, if you looked at that, almost all of that going back was talking about what Malachi said. And what he's saying is, God's word is true. He's sending a deliverer. It's starting now. Trust God's word. 
And there's so many of us in our lives that even it may not be as dramatic as that. There may not be an angel standing up beside our bed in the morning because if that happened to some of you, you wouldn't be here tomorrow. All right. There may not be an angel standing beside your bed in the morning, but we know the word of God. We have access to the word of God. And there are so many things and truths in God's words that we live our lives of is that they're not true. That he will protect us, that he will take care of us, that he loves us, that he desires the best for us, that his plan is great, that we are to be part of the global spread of the kingdom of God across the world. And over and over and over again, promises and calls and commands. And we live our lives as if those are attachments to our life, not the reality of our lives. We need to learn to trust God's word. Would you pray with me today?